So I want to say thank you to everybody for all of the prayer that went up while I was in China. It was an amazing trip. It was actually a very dangerous time to be there. The city that I was in, um, within just a few months before I got there, they closed down a YWAM base. The government confiscated their computers and So they were very concerned while I was there that they had gotten contacts and would find out where we were. And, um, but it was funny because I never, the whole time there, I never felt fear. I felt like, frankly, I felt like people were praying for me. And uh, it was a powerful time. And you'll hear stories, some this morning, but over time, you'll, you'll hear probably more than you want to hear, actually. Um, All right, let me introduce, before we read the text today, kind of what we're doing this morning and tonight. Um, I have been a student of the end times from when I began in my Christianity, back to the late great planet Earth and the end time Left Behind series and all the different books that I've studied. My, my Actually, my master's thesis was on the end times. And so I have had, turns out, I've had two very strong positions um, about the end times and how things are going to unfold. And it's kind of embarrassing, actually, that I, I don't think either one of those positions is right now. Um, <laughs> If you know my personality, I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt. Um, so I'm, I'm holding my, my, my most recent position a little more loosely. Um, and I just felt like at least, especially for all those that were here for the last time I did the end times, you deserve to have me do this tonight. And so... Tonight is called the End Times Puzzle, or Puzzle of the End Times, and here's the problem with any position you have on the end times. You don't get to choose which scriptures that you like. You, whatever position you have, every scripture about the end times has to be able to fit in there. You can't ignore part of scripture. That's just the whole... If it's inspired, it's all inspired, and you can't pick and choose. So every single piece has to fit in. You can't just believe this because you want to and not have any explanation of this, this, and this. And so uh, some of you really could probably care less about exactly how things or how I think they are, and that's wonderful. You don't need to come tonight. <laughs> But for those of you who, who do care, or maybe your curiosity will be piqued this morning, um, we will start right at 6 tonight. I will speak until probably about 7.30. Then we will have a half hour of questions or comments. And um, So I come to this new position over a many months, and I'm like, before I share this with any buddy in the congregation, I really, I really need to share it with leadership first, so I, I thought I would start with the staff. So I set up this 10 a.m. meeting on a Thursday morning. Whoever wants to hear this position and kind of give me feedback, uh, meet down there. 
10 o'clock. We were, we were downstairs in the new nursery room. So I get down there at 10 to 10, and Dave Bechtold is already there. Well, Dave, Dave's our family pastor, and Dave, if you know Dave at all, Dave is an amazingly fun guy. He does not do theology. He doesn't like, he doesn't like the whole... He, he's the type of person that could care less about what position you had. And I'm like, Dave, I'm shocked that you're here. And he said, well, I'm actually not here for the meeting. <laughs> he said, I just, I wanted to share with you what my Bible says about the end times. He said, I've got a children's Bible here. He said, we've only got one page and it's just a city of gold. And, and here's what I thought. You know, that's about really all you need to know. <laughs> with all, with all of, of my theology, really, at the end of the day, guys, there's a city of gold coming. Get excited. <laughs> all right. So... Uh, why don't we stand together in honor of God's word and we will get into this. Mark chapter 13, 1 through 31. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one of them, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing Where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because there will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, 
Look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, know that it, speaking of his coming, is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Would you pray with me, please? Father, would you speak? You have something, I believe, for every heart here today. Have your way in this place in everything we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the the title of the message this morning is Bridegroom or Thief. And my first point is about confirmation bias. Specifically, it's letting go of confirmation bias. Let me explain what confirmation bias is because I've become very familiar with it. It means that we have a bias toward what we already believe. It's very hard for us to change our position It's very hard for us even to read the Bible purely and believe what we read because we tend to read what we already believe. Once you you believe something, you read things through the filter of what you already believe, and it's just how our brain works. We, We organize things according to how we believe. Now, I believe that about the end times, this is... A huge problem. In this passage, the disciples only ask one question, and it is when will this happen to the temple? When will the temple be destroyed? When will one stone not be left upon another and all these buildings fall? That is the only question they ask. In Luke's Gospel, Luke 21, this is the only question that's asked. It's only in Matthew's gospel that it becomes very confusing because they ask two questions. They ask about the fall of Jerusalem and they ask about his coming, the sign of his coming. But in this one, and, and the, the, the three, those are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which means you need to view them together. To get to the truth, the full picture, you've got to read all three of them. You've got to understand all three of them. So in two of them, Jesus says, let me tell you about what's going to happen in your generation. 
Let me tell you about the sign that all of these things are about to happen, which is called the abomination of desolation. This is all, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. Now, it's really important that we start there because almost every end times idea comes from the, 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 the premise that all these things didn't happen in that generation. So there's two ways to get around it. If you don't think the things Jesus said was going to happen in that generation, there's two ways that you get around it. Okay, one is you take the word generation, it's used 15 times. In 14 of the 15 times, it means generation, but there's an alternate definition of race. And and so the NIV, the NAS will give you an alternative definition of that is, is race, i.e. the Jewish race will not pass away till all these things happened. And that, that's where I went. It just context rule. Jesus didn't come back, obviously, so it must mean race. It must mean all these things couldn't have happened because Jesus didn't come back. So that must mean race instead of generation. And I've taught it that way for many years. Scholars have said you really can't do that. It really has to mean generation. When it's used 15 times and 14 times, it means generation. And this is the way Jesus used it. You really gotta, it really needs to mean generation that 15th time. So there's another way around it. And it is simply to say, since all these things didn't happen, that this is the generation before the Lord comes back. So it's all going to happen in one generation, just not in that generation. It's actually about the generation before the Lord returns. Um, And it's all about his second coming. And that somehow the fall of Jerusalem was like a foreshadowing of something bigger, but there hasn't been an abomination of desolation. All these things haven't happened. So therefore... um, it has to mean something other than what Jesus said. I want you to consider with me the idea that it happened exactly like Jesus said it would happen. So we move on to point two. The abomination of desolation. There are many signs, and tonight I will go over every one of the signs that he came, he gave, that said would happen in their generation. But this morning, and we'll actually expand on the abomination of desolation, but right now, I just want to give you a brief overview of what actually happened in their generation. In 66 AD, there was an emperor named Nero who, uh, the Roman emperor who was uh, being rebelled against by the Jewish people. And he sent his general, Vespasian, to put down the rebellion of the Jews using any means possible. So Vespasian takes the, the Roman army, which 
with all of their iron weapons that were, they were desolators. They were, they had the iron teeth of Daniel 7. They just, wherever they went, they wiped anything out. And so he takes, he takes the army to Judea. Well, you start, if you're coming down to Judea, you start in Galilee. That's the northernmost province. And they started wiping out cities. And what happened was, um, People came out of their cities, leaders came out of their cities that the Roman army was coming to in Galilee and said, please don't wipe us out. We want to make a treaty with you. And so he did this. He made treaties with some of the cities of Galilee. Zephyrus, the largest city of Galilee, was the most notable. Josephus tells us all about this. So he makes a treaty with many of the Jews that says, we will, we will follow Rome's lead. We will, we will change sides if, if you will protect us. Most of the Jews are having none of this. And they rebel. Well, what happens in 69 AD, we'll talk about it more tonight, but there were, there were actually four emperors in one year. The, the last guy that became, the, actually became the emperor was, was Vespasian, the general. And he, at that point, sent his son Titus to finish off the war that he began. So here's what happened in 70 AD. Titus surrounds Jerusalem with armies right at Passover. So Jews have gathered from all over the world. They, the Jews have to come back from wherever they are, just like they did at Pentecost. They had to all regather for Passover. So there are, um, there's, there's two numbers, somewhere between 600,000 and 1.1 million Jews are gathered at Passover. And he runs a siege against them The Roman army will not let them out. They are stuck. And they are stuck there for four months. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, the sign is the abomination of desolation. In Luke's gospel, here's the sign Jesus gives. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, these are days of vengeance so that all things written will be fulfilled. The Roman army fought under an ensign or a standard. This ensign that they carried with them was very important. It was kind of like their flag. If if that got stolen or taken, they would have to go after it because that was what they they fought under. It was an eagle or other emblem uh, under the eagle was placed the image of the head of the reigning emperor, which was to the army, an object of worship or veneration. The name of the emperor or of him who was acknowledged as emperor was sometimes inscribed in the same situation. After a victory, they would often sacrifice to the ensign. Now, this is, this is going to be very important. So the Roman army fights under this ensign that has the image of the emperor and it is consi- he, he was considered divine. So here's what happens in 70 AD. There is a four-month siege 
Jews that try to leave are crucified. The ones that are there starve. There are three groups that have false messiahs saying this is going to be the greatest hour of the Jews that we're going to win. We're going to, we're going to defeat the Roman Empire. And um, Titus eventually breaks in. He burns the temple. And what happens is the gold of the temple melts in between the stones. So literally to get at the gold, they... Not one stone is left upon another. They, they completely take the temple apart to get at the gold. While the temple is still burning, Josephus tells us that they sacrifice to the Roman ensign. It is exactly three and a half years from the time that the war started in 66 A.D., It's now August of 70 AD, three and a half years. The temple is destroyed. They make sacrifices to the Roman ensign on the wing of the temple, which is all that's left is the the wailing wall, which isn't even part of the exact temple, but it's just, it's in the temple area. Herod added it later. So sacrifices in Israel cease, not just for them, but forever because there is no temple which is required to make the sacrifices. But the war does not end them. Titus continues to pursue Jews in other places, Jews that hadn't gathered, Jews that had escaped even before the the, the army surrounded. And for three and a half more years, he pursues the Jews. The final place of hiding is a stronghold called Masada. And when he breaks through Masada in 73 AD, a thousand Jews have already committed suicide. So the whole war was seven years. At the three and a half year point, an abomination of desolation appeared in the temple. Not one stone was left upon another. And the Christians were all saved. Jesus had, had got them ready. Jesus said, listen, this is going to happen in your lifetime. Here's the, here's the order of events. When these things begin to happen, you need to flee Jerusalem. You need to get out of Judea because it's, it's not time of deliverance. It's a time of judgment. And Eusebius, an early church father, says... That's exactly what the Christians did. They all fled to a place called Pella. The Christians were all saved. This did not go over well with the Jews. From 70 AD on, Christians were not allowed to come into Jewish synagogues because of this. Jesus said... This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. He said those words in 33 AD. 40 years later, 73 AD, the Jewish war is over. Seven-year war, three and a half years, abomination of death. Everything happened just like he said. And then he said, following these events, following this distress you will see the sign of the Son of Man. And he will be like lightning from one side 
of another. And then he says, when you see all these things happening, know that it, his coming, is right at the door. Truly, truly, I say, this generation will not pass away till all these things happen. Did you notice something? Jesus did not say he was coming back in their generation. He said his coming would be right at the door before this generation was over. That his coming would be, we use the word imminent. That before this generation, there's a number of things that have to happen before I come back. But by the time this generation is over, those things will have been fulfilled. Everything that was written about vengeance against the Jews for rejecting Christ will have been fulfilled. And then my coming will be imminent. There's two rescue and judgment events that Jesus describes. One is going to happen in their generation. He knows when it's going to be, and he gets them ready for it. He gives them every sign that's going to lead up to it so that they are not caught unaware and they obey those signs. It happens exactly how he said it would happen. The Jewish system ends by the temple being destroyed and they, they were ready for that. But there is a second rescue and judgment event. And this one could not be more different than the first one. The second one, Jesus doesn't know when it's going to happen. There are going to be no signs that lead up to it. I want to just read it from Matthew chapter 24. But about that day or hour, speaking of his coming, no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect him. So Jesus knows when one rescue and judgment is going to happen. He says emphatically, this is how it's going to happen in your generation. Here's the signs that are going to lead up to it. Here is the sign. When you see this, you need to flee. To be rescued, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to leave. You pray that it's not at winter. Pray that it's... He gives all these things. It's a, it's a local judgment. It is on Israel. It's on Judea. It's, and this is not worldwide. This is just there. And they, here's how you escape that judgment. And then there's going to be a second rescue and judgment. And it's going to be like Noah's flood. People aren't going to know when. They're going to just be eating, drinking, marrying, giving a marriage. 
He said in Luke 17, it will be like the days of Lot. And he adds to marrying, giving a marriage, building, planting. Um, they're going to be doing everyday life. And then suddenly, without any warning, Jesus is going to come back. And he says, I don't know when this is. The son does not know when he will come back. Which means the Holy Spirit doesn't know. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will only speak what he hears from me. Jesus speaks to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will speak to us. Jesus is right now building his church. And so Jesus is building his church. And so he, he's got a place for each of us. And so the Holy Spirit will speak to us and say, I want you to do this. And I want you to do this. And this is going to happen. And then I want that to happen. And, and you can have all kinds of vision. And none of it actually happened. Why? Because the father could say, no, right now, go back. He doesn't know when. When the father says go, he will come back. And it could happen at any time. It became imminent in the first generation. I listened to Greg's message a few weeks ago. Try to make sure that I don't say the exact same things he said so that you don't get bored. But um, maybe you're bored already. It's okay. All right. Uh, So here we are. I'm now down to point four, and that is for some, Jesus will come like a bridegroom at a Jewish wedding. Early in the gospel of actually all of the synoptic gospels, Jesus introduces himself as the bridegroom. They're, they're questioning him about why, why are his disciples not fasting in the same way that John the Baptist's disciples. And he says, because you don't fast while the bridegroom is with you. He is a bridegroom. He introduces himself as the bridegroom. No one knows who's he's, who he's marrying at this point, but he is the bridegroom. And then in Matthew 22, he says... The kingdom of God is like a king that wants to give a wedding for his son. And then the human race is pictured as people that are invited to the wedding and that that these these invitations go out to attend the wedding. And, And the whole point is what a privilege it would be to be invited to a wedding of the king's son. And 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 people were ignoring the invitation, and that's all in Matthew 22. And then in Matthew 25, he says that his coming is going to be like a Jewish wedding. And in this one, we're pictured not as merely those that are attending. We're pictured as the wedding party. We're not not just invited to the wedding. We're in the wedding. There's attendants that are are part of the wedding party, and they are with the the bride. And so that, that would certainly be even a greater privilege. But something happens at the Last Supper that would have caught the disciples' attention, would have gripped them. But to understand that, you have to understand what a Jewish wedding looked like in those days for people of means. A Jewish wedding started with the father of the bride meeting with the bridegroom. And they had to come to an agreement about what the price would be that he would pay for his bride. 
And once that agreement was made, there was a time of, uh, called of the betrothal. We have engagement. Betrothal is much stronger than engagement. Betrothal, to break a betrothal, you actually had to get divorced. So it's very strong. And what that involved was the bridegroom would meet with the bride-to-be, and they would share a cup of wine together. And he would say, here is the price that your father has set on you. And I want you to know that I am willing to pay that price. And he would drink, and she would drink, sealing first that he would pay the price that was required. But second, that he would come again and make her his bride. Very strange, but once you were betrothed, you separated. The bridegroom would actually go back to the fa- his father's house and he would build the wedding chamber where the wedding feast was going to be held and he would build their residence, oftentimes added on to the father's actual house. And once all of the arrangements were ready for both the bridal chamber and the, the future residence, the father would say, it's time, go and get your bride. They did not know the day or the hour, but it was usually in a three-week period, one year from the betrothal. And in this three-week period, this is just how they did it, they, the, bride, the bridegroom's party would come to get the bride, and the fun of it was she wouldn't know when he was coming. And so for three weeks, the bridal party has to go to bed every night with their bridal clothes on. Could you imagine this? You get, you get ready, you have to get ready, not once for the wedding, but every single day. You need to be ready, you have to keep it pressed, you have to keep it clean, you, because it could happen any moment. And frankly, they, 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 the preferred way to come was at night. And here's how the rules went. When you got to the edge of the town, you would send forth the person that would give the shout. And he would go through the streets saying, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. And at that point, the, bridal, the bride's party would have to wake up, light up their oil lamps, come out into the street, and everybody that had a lit lamp got picked up and brought back to the father's house for the wedding. So they're at the Last Supper. They are sharing a cup of wine. And this is what Jesus says to them. This is John chapter 14, verse 3. And if I go, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. There are many rooms in my Father's house. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. This word take is a very special Greek word. It's only used a few times. It's the, it's the word paralambanio. And it means, Strong's Concordance says, it means to take to one side in an act 
of intimacy. It is the word used in Matthew 1.24 when it says Joseph took Mary to be his wife. It is paralambano. But it is also the word used. When Jesus says, he says, first he says that, that it will be like the days of Noah. When Noah got on the ark, the flood came and took them all away. And this is a situation, one of the very few situations where you, you need to know the Greek to find out what's going on. Because when he says the flood will come and, and took them all away, the word took there is airo, A-I-R-O, and it means to take away in an act of judgment. And it's used that way four different times in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, to take away in judgment. Then he says, here's what it'll be like. Two men will be working in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Well, he changes words. It's not, it's not Iro, it's Paralambano. Two women will be grinding in a mill. One will be taken, Paralambano. In Luke's gospel, two will be sleeping in a bed. One will be taken in an act of intimacy. Jesus is coming as a bridegroom for his bride. This, this is the time right now where we need to have our wedding clothes on all the time. We need to be ready for his coming at any moment. We cannot tell ourselves, well, it certainly won't be today. If you don't think it'll be today, well, then it's very possible it'll be today because Jesus said it's going to be when you don't think. It's not going to be. It's not going to be now. Well, it could be, just by you saying that. It could be. And we need to live ready. Jesus is building His church. The Holy Spirit's giving instructions, so we need to be involved. And Greg talked about that. We're 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 to be dressed for service. We're to be doing our part. But we've always got one eye up, because this is not the big event. What's happening down here? The big event is still to come. And so whatever situation we have down here, and none of us chose to be alive at this time or to have our family or to have our circumstances. None of us chose that. And we could have been born at any time and any difficulty and any, we could have been born during war. We kind of are born during wars. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff happening in the world. But there's always a hope that purifies us. That whatever, however bad our life is down here, this isn't it. There's a, there's a wedding coming, folks. There is a bridegroom that is coming. And we need to be ready for him. Paul confirms in Ephesians 5.32 that the bride, we are the bride. That this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of the relationship of Christ and the church. That's the, the wedding passage. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 62.4. No longer will they call you deserted or desolate, but you will be called Hafsabah, which means the Lord's delight. For the Lord will take delight in you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. God is in the business of changing our name. From desolate and deserted to Hafsabah. 
Our, our very identity is that God's delight is in us. This is, this is key to us coming into the beauty of the bride is knowing that God's delight is in us. Well, if that was the whole message, that would be exciting. But for most people, Jesus will not be coming as a bridegroom. He'll be coming as a thief. This is why the overwhelming illustration giving about the end times is about the thief coming. Jesus uses the word thief that he's coming. If the owner of the house had known when the thief was coming, he uses it again in Revelation twice, which we will look at later. Paul uses it. He's coming like a thief in the night. Peter uses it. He's coming like a thief. Three reasons why Jesus coming will be like a thief in the night. First, it will be unexpected. You do not receive a postcard from from a thief that says in two weeks, I'm going to be coming. I'm going to be visiting your house. We, we've been having some uh, robberies in McFarland recently. And uh, frankly, we, we aren't used to locking up. We're just very complacent about it. But recently, we're very vigilant. There's a thief. We, we, you don't know when he would come. You don't know if it's going to be during the day or at night or if somebody's... We, we're ready. You don't know when he's coming. See, the bride, when when you're the bride, you are always looking for his coming. So his coming doesn't surprise you. You know he's coming. You're looking for his coming. You're expecting his coming. You're excited about his coming. So it's not unexpected, even though you don't know the day or the hour. It is an expected coming. But the thief takes you off guard. You, you were not looking for this. You, were, you made your life down here. You're eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, building, planting. It's all become about this life. And so when the thief comes, it's very unexpected. Second reason why it's like a thief is a thief does not come to stay. Jesus, at the rapture, gathers us to himself and takes us back to heaven for the wedding feast. This, you don't wake up and find the thief sleeping on your couch. Yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm the guy that robbed your house last night, and I was just exhausted. And so I just thought I'd crash here, maybe have breakfast with you folks. And then, and then take off. You're, the thief doesn't come to stay. He's, he, he, he comes and he steals and he goes. And Jesus' coming at the rapture will be like that. On his return to earth, which he will come with the bride, we'll talk about this tonight, he comes to stay. He comes to establish his kingdom on earth. But at the rapture, he comes like a thief. And the third way that it's like a thief, which is probably the most important, is the thief always leaves more than he takes. 
The thief takes the jewels. He takes the cash. He takes that which is precious. And he leaves the refrigerator, the couch, that old love seat. All the things you wish he would take, he leaves. Jesus is going to rob this world of its jewels, of its saints. And there's going to be a little time of hell on earth we will talk about tonight. So why do we have this thing about the thief and Jesus talking about the thief? Why does he speak more about being a thief than a bridegroom? Here's why. Jesus wants you ready. Jesus Jesus wants us to be ready. Guys, as surely as everything Jesus said would happen in his generation, as surely as those things happen, as specific as it happened with not even one stone will be left upon another, wrath did come on the Jewish people. It was horrible beyond any measure. So, so it will, Jesus will come back, just as he said. And he wants you to be ready. I was... Uh, on my flight from Detroit, or Madison to Detroit, and I was with a woman, uh, next to a woman, her and her husband are from Madison, and they run a business here, and um, we just got chatting, and she found out about my trip, and who I am, and what I'm doing, and they don't go to church, But she was very excited about talking to me because she's got two friends. They don't live in Madison. They're across the country that are Christians, that are Jesus freaks. And, and she can't really talk to them because she's just defensive with them. So she's got me. She's going to just pull everything she can out of me about Christianity, about what is this? And what, why are they so excited? And for whatever reason, she felt like I was a safe person to talk to and get answers. And, uh, and I, of course, I was more than willing to supply them. Um, but her biggest thing was because uh, I, I said, who do, you, who do you think goes to heaven? She says, well, g- well, good people. Good people go to heaven. And she was a good person. They're involved in doing good things. They're kind to people. They're not destructive. And I, I said to her, I, I said, you know, I really have no doubt that you are a good person. Just, just talking to you, just being with you. You are a good person. Compared to other human beings. If this was a contest based on how you're doing next to other human beings, you would, you would make it. But I said, that's not how God sees it. If you see a sheep in a green pasture, you will say, that's a white sheep. But if you see that same sheep right after a snowstorm, you will say, what happened to that sheep? That sheep is filthy. 
And I said, God does not judge us against the backdrop of human behavior. He judges us according to the backdrop of his divine holiness. And I said, I said Isaiah 64, 6 says this, even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. Even the best thing you've ever done is tainted before God. He's that holy. I said, no, because of that, we're all sinners. We all haven't sinned in the same way, but we are all sinners. We're all separated from God, God's presence because of sin. But that doesn't mean God doesn't still love us. It just means that the solution to becoming clean does not lie with us. In Revelation chapter 6, the rapture is described. And in chapter 7, during the sixth seal, the, the whole rapture that Jesus describes here is the sign, exactly the sixth seal. It happens during the sixth seal. In chapter 7, he, John has a chance during the sixth seal to see a number of things. And one of them is he sees a multitude appear before the throne of God. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And he says, who are these and where did they come from? And the angel says this. These are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's no stain worse than grape juice. So I looked up in the internet to find out, how do you get out a grape, grape juice stain? Number one answer, here it is. Ladies, get your pen out. Mix one tablespoon of wine vinegar and a half teaspoon of liquid laundry detergent with one quart of warm water. Soak in this solution for 15 minutes. If the stain remains, sponge with rubbing alcohol and rinse thoroughly. It's no guarantee that you're going to get grape juice out, but this is the best way to do it. How do you get out the stain of sin? How do you get out the stain that sin has left? You could try a lot of stuff. <laughs> you could try, I'll go to church more often. You could try, I'll be better. I'll be a better person from now on. I'll be better. I'll, I'll do better. You can, you, can, you can kiss monuments or try to do all kinds of things. And every religion in the world will give you things you could do. And this is what will get rid of your sin. Nothing you do, nothing you can do gets rid of sin stain. It's why Jesus died on the cross. The only way you can get rid of sin and the stain sin leaves is by the blood of the lamb. Jesus died and there's one substance in heaven and earth that can remove the stain sin leaves and that's the blood of Jesus. But it's not enough that he died. It says they washed their garments in the blood. You've, it's not enough that you've got to wash her. You've got, you've got to deal with your sin. You've got to take your garments. You've got to take your, even your righteous deeds 
and say, Jesus, I need to be cleaned. I need to be washed. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for the cross. Wash me, God. Wash me. Make me clean again. If you are an unbeliever here today, Jesus wants you to leave here washed. It's why he died on the cross. The second group he wants to get ready are professing believers. Revelation 3, 1 through 3. Jesus is writing to his church. This is the church at Sardis. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This is very disturbing. Frankly, a lot of what he says about the end times is disturbing. What he says about the foolish virgins is disturbing. There are 10 that start out with a lamp and start out with oil in their lamp and are planning on meeting the bridegroom. But five are foolish and they don't trim their wick and they don't bring any oil with them and they thought they were ready to be welcomed and they were rejected. And Jesus here, he's ready to his church. And he's saying, wake up. Wake up! He's breaking presumption off of his church. And he says, you're not, you're not done yet. You're not home yet. It's really important that we all get it in our heads that the Savior is not the sinner's prayer. The, senior, the, the Savior is not an event that happens at the altar. The Savior is not you getting baptized. The Savior is a person, Jesus It is a relationship with Jesus. And that relationship needs to be maintained. Like any relationship does, you need to actually walk with him. Jesus says, uh, John 15, 6, very disturbing. Those who do not continue in me will be cut off like a a dried branch and thrown into the fire. It's not enough to believe in him You have to keep believing in him. You have to walk with him. You have to continue in him. There is no deal whereby you get to ask Jesus into your life and then live however you want to live. That's not how it works. Well, I don't like that. Well, that's why I'm telling it to you. Seriously, I don't want anybody to be surprised. Revelation 16, 15, Jesus is right in the middle of, or John is in the middle of describing the end time judgments. And Jesus himself speaks in the midst of it and says this, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as to not go naked and be shamefully exposed. The big issue in China with China believers is fear. It's a mountain of fear. There is fear all the time, and that's something they need to shake off. That's something they need to press through. That's something they need to, they need to trust God. And if they suffer, that God will be with, with them. But when I come back to America, 
our, what we're dealing with, our mountain is not fear. It's called complacency. We, we can be put to sleep by the things of this world. The enemy's done a very good job of just, just letting Christians not take it so seriously, not, not be on fire, not... And Jesus says, listen, wake up. Wake up. Do not get in your mind that you could never be left behind. No, you could be left behind. I could be left behind. I don't want to end on that. I want to end with this. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus loves his church. He gave himself on the cross for his church. He loves you. There's no one in this building that wants you to make it more than Jesus does. And he wants you to know as a believer, his blood was not just good for you one time when you came in. He wants you to know it's not too late. You could trim your wick. Trimming your wick is everything that's happened in the past. You could trim away yesterday's sin, yesterday's failure, yesterday's horror, whatever it was, yesterday's sadness. You, you, in fact, not, not only can you, you need to. Trim the wick. He's got fresh oil. This is the time for you to get fresh oil. In Luke 12, it says, be dressed for service and, let, and keep your lamps burning. Jesus has the power right now to make every single person in this building ready, to make us holy, blameless, to get spots out, to, to get wrinkles out. Whatever's happened in your Christianity, he's got the power right now. It, this is about grace, folks. This is not about, well, eventually I'm going to be holy and blameless. No! That, it is his gift to us to make us holy and blameless. And he's speaking his word. See, the enemy roars like a lion and he says, no, you can't be forgiven. You've done this. You're, you're this. You're a pervert. You're, you're filled with this. You're filled with that. You're not, you're not ready and you're not going to be ready. That is a lie. Jesus is here today and he's speaking. He's speaking. I am coming soon. I want you ready. I died to make you ready. My word, he cleanses us with the washing of the water of his word. Did you know that when his word speaks to us, it doesn't just convict us, it creates what he wants in us. When God speaks, he creates what he wants in us. So if the worship team could come, um, two calls, if we could close our eyes and bow our heads. I've got two groups I want to pray for. The first one is you're here today and you've always kind of maybe thought of yourself as a good person and therefore in your equation you'll go to heaven because good people are going to go to heaven. And the Lord's here today and he's gentle but he is speaking. 
Compared to his holiness, you're not a good person. You're guilty. You're stained. Even the best things you've done are stained. But that's not the whole message. The whole message is a Savior has come for you. He has died on a cross. And he wants to make your garments white by his blood. If that's you, the Bible says, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And if that is you, I have every head bowed because this is between you and God. But I have people raise their hands because somebody helped me pray. And I like to help people find the words to pray. So if that is you, Jesus is knocking and you, wanna, you want to wash your garments and make them clean. Would you just raise your hand real high right now, long enough for me to see it. See that hand, that hand, and that hand, that hand, and that hand. God bless you. And that hand up there, you can put those hands down. I'm just looking for any more hands. Would you just put your hand over your heart right now and pray something like this? Jesus, thank you for chasing me down. Thank you that you don't just leave the one that's lost. Say, well, praise God, I've got 99 still. No, you go after, you go after that one. Well, Jesus, today you found me. Lord, I, I open my heart, I open my life, and I, I ask you to come in, and I choose today to wash all of my sins away in your blood. Only your blood makes me clean. Clean me today. Holy Spirit, would you just make this real in every heart that prayed? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And could we all stand together? Second calls for believers. And you know what? Maybe you're not fully asleep, but maybe you're just groggy. Is it, anybody know, know what I'm talking about? You're, 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 you're dozing off. You're, you're catching yourself. And it's just this world is spinning so quickly, it just kind of puts us to sleep. And today has been a wake-up call. You want to be fully awake. Guys, I want, to, I want to stay so awake. So if that's you, would you just open your arms to the Lord? We're just going to have a prayer. Lord, you're so gracious to speak words maybe that are hard to hear but they're true you speak words that are true and Lord thank you that in your word is the power to wake us up and Father I speak for myself but I think I'm speaking for everybody that's got their arms open right now Lord we don't want to just be kind of awake we don't want to be in that place between wake and sleep and and We want to be fully awake to the things the Spirit is doing. Lord, thank you for the blessings of eating and drinking and our work and and our families and marrying and all of, thank you for all of those things. Those are all blessings from you. But Lord, don't let them become our whole life. Don't let our life center around this world, God. Wake our hearts up, Jesus. We want to live ready. We want to live excited. And Lord, sometimes we have to clean each other off. We just have to point, hey, there's a stain there. Let's get that. Hey, there's a wrinkle there. Let me iron that. 
Thank you, Jesus, for church. Thank you for small groups. Thank you for gatherings where we, 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 we examine things and make sure we're ready again. Now, Lord, let us keep doing it until you come back. Thank you, Jesus. The bridegroom is coming. Jesus, find us. Find us in you. Find us united because you've only got one bride. Lord, any divisions, break them out of our lives. We love you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, six o'clock tonight. I'm going to have to start right at six. We do have childcare downstairs. Um, I hope if you want to, you come back. God bless you. Have a great day. We'll have ministry teams up here as well.